Hey, it's Chris Wendelkin, and this is On The Line, my NBA podcast, where I talk to friends of mine living around the country about all things hoops. We do some NBA deep dives, some drafts, some news notes for around the league. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new to the show, you can tweet at me at onaline underscore pod. Ask me any of your NBA-related questions at onalinepod at gmail.com. Check out previous episodes on our website. That's onthelinepodcast.com. Hop into a deep dive, a draft. Uh, it's all up there. Last, if you could rate, review, subscribe to the show on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts, I greatly appreciate it. All right. Welcome back. Um, the NBA season always hits a point. I feel like we're basically, we, uh, we're all ready for the playoffs to begin. <laughs> we kind of know who is and isn't uh, advancing. Star players are are either resting or making their last push to win the MVP or rookie of the year or whatever it is. Non-playoff teams are tanking harder than ever to try to increase their lottery odds. You start hearing the scuttlebutt about star players. I feel like at this point, you know, where they're going to play next year, what their off season plans are, you know, what their free agency plans are, who's going to team up with one another. So with that in mind, I wanted to pick up where we left off with the Allen Iverson series that Ben and I started working on earlier this year. So if you missed the first three parts, um, feel free to hit pause on this one. Go back, find those episodes. I believe they're episodes 29, 30, and 35. They're all titled Iverson. I believe they were published around September, October, November. They're all up on the website. And uh, take a listen, enjoy, and this podcast will be here waiting for you whenever you're all caught up. So let's pick up where we left off. It's November 1st, 1996. Allen Iverson, the number one overall pick in the NBA draft, is about to make his debut against the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, Iverson's made it to this moment against all odds. Remember, this is a kid who who grew up without a father. He was imprisoned for the Circle Lanes bowling alley brawl. He was granted clemency by Virginia Governor Douglas Wilder, and he gave up on his football dreams to star for John Thompson and the Hoyas at Georgetown. AI's been waiting for the rest of his life to begin, and it's finally here. So let's hop into it. Without further ado, this is The Life and Times of Allen Iverson, Chapter 4. So his very first game in the NBA um, is against the, the 76ers play the Milwaukee Bucks, and Iverson in his very first game scores 30 points. Iverson, the number one pick last June. When he turned 21 years of age at even 6 feet, 165 pounds, raw lightning. Wait till you see him play. And the revolution is underway, and for the first time this season, we're running. And so, so basically right out of the gates, he's just... Yeah. He's established himself as like a premier player. Yeah. Um, and he also has a tendency to kind of like step up and, and rise to the occasion on like especially big stages and, and big um, kind of moments. So his sixth game in the NBA as a rookie is against the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden, and he puts up 35 points in an upset win against the Knicks, who at that time were still you know a very good team. Now then, later in the season, this is uh, the 96-97 season, um, on December 21st of 96, uh, the Sixers play the Chicago Bulls, and Iverson scores 32 against Jordan and Pippen and the Bulls. And, um, and after the game, Michael Jordan gave this quote to the Chicago Tribune, quote, he sure has some confidence. At one point, I mentioned to him that he was going to have to respect us. If you don't respect anybody else in this league, you have to respect us. He said he doesn't have to respect anybody. Yeah. So that just gives you a, so- a sense, uh, like a snapshot of what how Iverson is 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 sort of like treating his his NBA peers his very first year and this is against you know his childhood idol uh, you know at that time the greatest player of all time the defending champion Chicago Bulls like he's just like not giving a fuck at all well this continues like a theme right and a thread throughout the life of Iverson and now it's like into his pro career that he has no respect you know like this is like we talked about it throughout the trial um, in with circle lanes, bowling alley, you know, like he was a kid with no respect. And if he only had more respect for his peers and for tradition, then like maybe, maybe he wouldn't have had so much trouble. Right. And, um, yeah, like he just came into the league as a disruptor, even, you know, like in even right away as in his rookie season. Yeah. And it was just something that like at that time there really wasn't like that much of like a, like 
that attitude in the league, you know, it was still like a, well, you were supposed to be, yeah, you're supposed to be like deferential to your, like to the elder statesmen, right? Like you're supposed to be deferential to all the greats, you know, Michael Jordan, the greatest, greatest player in the history of the sport, you know, like top of his game, MVP world champion at that point. Uh, what, what was this in the, in the late nineties by that point they had won like five rings, six rings at that point. Yeah. This um, is on and, their, and, on their way to their Fifth, I believe at that point. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So like and and Iverson just doesn't care. Yeah, like that was the tradition of the of the league and Iverson just came in and like was like I don't I'm going to do something different here. Um so sp- speaking of doing something different, it was in February of that season, um February 8th to be exact, at the Schick rookie game at All-Star weekend when All-Star rookie game. All-Star rookie game. The cornrows are unveiled. The debut. For the very first time. So apparently Iverson grew his hair out during a, uh, a trip to South America on his first international tour for Reebok. And he was on the plane basically uh, coming back from South America and like t- talking to his uh, sort of his, his Reebok like body man, um, this guy, Q Gaskins, um, who basically was tasked with like you know, following Iverson around and, and just sort of like being his um, his attache, I guess, from Reebok. Um, and he and Q Gaskins were like, yeah, let's grow our hair out. Think about getting cornrows. Meanwhile, Q Gaskins, the Reebok representative, is like, yeah, I don't know about that. That's, um, you know, because he's thinking from like a brand perspective, like no player in the NBA had cornrows. And this is an image, you know, a, a hairstyle and we can, I don't know, you know, we don't have to get into the whole, like, history of of, um, of cornrows and how, you know, they're a sort of a traditional, like, African um, style and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. going back centuries. Um, but at that time, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, like, cornrows were very much seen as, like, like the style of, like, prison inmates, you know, and, like, rappers. It was, like, a, it was a political statement. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, like, very much, like, like not for you know, commercial consumption. This is not the kind of image um, that a massive commercial brand uh, would want want to be associated with. (laughs) You can't be a corporate spokesperson and have cornrows, certainly not in the mid to late 90s. No, and he and Iverson was one of the premier faces of Reebok. Yeah, that's right. In fact, yeah, I forgot... I guess I haven't... I didn't really research all that much about how he made the decision, but yeah, we sort of skipped over the, the part where he... He does sign with Reebok, which was a major deal um, at the right. time. Uh, since you know Nike had been had been recruiting him going back to his high school days, and of course it was Nike who flew him out for the uh, you know the basketball camp during That's his right. during his trial, his trial in Hampton. Right. Um, but it was Reebok that he ended up signing with. Um, one of the reasons probably was the fact that Reebok gave him a lifetime deal worth like thirty two million dollars. Um, so, yeah, that could have had something to do with it. But it was sure. also sort of the brand at the time that was like, you know, the youthful alternative. Like they were sort of like, you know, the Pepsi to Coca-Cola. Reebok was sort of the upstart, you know. They had like Shaquille O'Neal, I guess, was like their first major, major star athlete. That's um, right. But Nike represented, you know, Jordan and, again, that that sort of old school traditional NBA um, and, and Iverson you know, clearly wanted to go in, in a different direction there. Hey, Ben, a couple things. I just want to uh, just grab a couple different straws here. So um, one, um, just uh, while we're on the topic of Iverson with the cornrows in the rookie game, um, you know, Iverson had, you know, it became really iconic and famous for his hair over the course of his career, you know, with the cornrows. Um these these initial cornrows that he debuts at the Schick uh, All Star Rookie Challenge are very straight. They're just they're not they're not what f- fans who love Iverson will come to remember. That's, know, a, Iverson that's, a, great, for that's a great point. Zigzagged the zigzag, the crisscross. He became very much an innovator with his hair. Yeah, uh, we discussed him. I don't know that he was drafted, but we definitely discussed his name. Of course, in the hair draft. Um, but these initial cornrows were very. Uh, they were very they were straight yeah uh, you know he 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 it was just like uh entry level cornrows totally exactly entry level like the most basic you know basic sort of elementary yeah. like starter cornrows that, that exactly. you can that you can really do like 
you know, he didn't, he was he didn't very want much to like just... waiting. He was like very much like waiting into the water with these cornrows. Yeah. And I think obviously he found something. It was a hit. And then he really started experimenting and getting innovative with like the weaving of rows. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we can, we can talk maybe a little bit later about like the different, you know, directions that his hair took, but, uh, the, these initial rows were very just straight. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to point that out. The other thing was, um, while we're on the topic of the rookie challenge, I just want to read the rosters for both squads, some pretty familiar names here. So we have Alan I- in the East, we have Alan Iverson, Kerry Kittles, Antoine Walker, Marcus Camby, Eric Dampier, John Wallace, Ray Allen, Vitali Papadenko, uh, Kobe Bryant, Sharif Abdurrahim, Matt Maloney, Roy Rogers, Travis Knight, Derek Fisher, Lorenzen Wright, and Steve Nash. What a rookie class, man. That is insane. Yeah, it was also interesting. I'm just looking at photos of the rookie game and... You know, it, it was it was uh, it was cool because they. I think this is like still when the rookie challenge was kind of a new thing. This may have been like even I could be wrong about this. Yeah, this may they, have been like the inaugural like rookie challenge or whatever. Yeah, I want to say yeah. It was if it wasn't that year, it was like one or two seasons before that. When, uh, yeah, when they, it, it, I think they were still. It was like still a uh, not work in progress, but like for instance, they they branded this the NBA Rising Stars Challenge. Um, uh, and what we've come to now know as the, as the, as the rookie game, uh, the rookie all-star game. But, um, it's just interesting looking at photos because all the players wear their jerseys for their home squad. Like, you you know what I mean? It was like such a new, I think it was still such like a new concept, the game that, you know, they weren't like branding the they didn't have like their own jerseys. Yeah, they didn't like, even the have like didn't have its own rookie, jerseys. Rookie game jerseys. Yeah. Yeah. So these guys just show up. Like Iverson's there in his Sixers jersey. He's standing next to Marcus Camby, who's in a Raptors jersey. He's standing next to Eric Dampier in a Pacers jersey. Right. Right. Um, you know, they just they just threw them all out there on the court, which is fun. Yeah. And then yeah. the last thing, the last thing I wanted to point out about uh, we mentioned Reebok was, um, you know, the name Gary Moore has come up a bunch throughout the course of the pod, but Gary Moore had the um, the savvy and the wherewithal to set aside, I want to say it was like upwards of 30 or $40 million of that contract for Allen Iverson right. to be paid later in life. Right, so, when, he, when he signed it, it the, the lump sum was split into two parts, um, half of which was only accessible at, I believe it was what age, like 50, 50 years old. Yeah. It's a $32 million Reebok trust. So Alan, uh, Alan Iverson signed this massive, um, you know, massive deal with Reebok and his business manager, Gary Moore said that he would only be able to collect on 32, the final $32 million of the contract um, when he turns 55 years old in 55. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Which, as we'll discuss, is like one of the very few, like, actually wise and forward looking uh, financial decisions that Iverson yes. made in his career. He but, famously yeah. had, a, had a lot of trouble in that respect. He, yeah, but, he certainly um, did. But, but props yeah, to Gary just, Moore for, I, for thinking ahead. Um, I just figured while we were on the topic of the uh, the Reebok, yeah, that's a that's an important point to bring up that that we'll we'll probably yeah. come back to at a later point. Yes, um, yes. So okay. so, so yeah. So getting back to the cornrows, though, I, I I was trying to research if Iverson was in fact the very first NBA player to wear cornrows in a basketball game, and as far as I could tell, he was. I found um, the only other players that. Uh, I found that would that could potentially have challenged him for that um, for that historic distinction were uh, Latrell Sprewell. Yeah, I remember Sprewell. So he had. had so there's a photo of him that I found online where he's got cornrows mm-hmm. on November twelfth, nineteen ninety seven. Right when he was still on the Warriors, um, yeah. but that was in November of ninety seven. So that was the following season. And then the other guy who was an early cornrow. Um, uh, ad- adopter was Rashid Wallace. Um, oh, of course. But uh, back when he was on the Blazers, but he the, the earliest photo that I could find of, of Wallace and Cornrows was from December of '97. So it seems like um, from everything I can tell, Iverson was in fact the very first, and he did it in um, you know in February of '97, and then it wasn't until like the following off season, and then the new season began, the '97-'98 year began, that other players were kind of like 
okay, I could, you know, maybe, maybe I could do this now. Like I could, um, you know, after Iverson kind of, kind of broke that, broke that barrier. Um, well, just think about that. I mean, we were talking about like the corporate, you know, image of guys with cornrows and like, it was just not really an acceptable thing. Think about the two other names that we just mentioned yeah. you know, in conjunction with Allen Iverson, Rashid Wallace and Latrell Sprewell during the late nineties, both of those guys were like synonymous with trouble, like trouble. Notorious. Like, they were, they were notorious. considered NBA troublemakers. Yeah. So, you know, cornrows and NBA basketball in the, you know, mid to late nineties were, you were, you know, a renegade and it was, you know, it was not necessarily looked at as like a, a good thing. Yeah. Um, so it certainly Iverson didn't help that of... on, um, on December 1st, I believe of, uh, 1997, uh, Latrell Sprewell was, uh, wearing cornrows during the, um, press conference that he gave directly following, uh, the choking of his coach, <laughs> PJ, PJ Carlissimo. Um, so, so yeah, suffice to say, um, cornrows didn't always have like, you know, the, the most positive and family friendly association to them. Um, right in the league. Yeah. So yeah, that was, you know, it wasn't, it was a, something of a, you know, pretty controversial and, and daring and risky move. Um, but Iverson, you know, said, hey, this is me. This is what I want to do. And he always claimed that he did it um, because it was simply the easiest way for him to, like, kind of, um, you know, for, 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 like, hair maintenance for him. Like, he just didn't feel like, you know, having to, like, wash his hair and comb it and blah, blah, blah. Every, you know, after every game in corners was, was you know, courted to, of course, he, he later did it as, like, a style statement when he got more intricate with his designs. But, um, but from the beginning, he always said like, he just did it basically for like practical purposes. Cause it was like easier to maintain. So, and then, yeah. So as you noted, uh, right. He kind of went back and forth. So he, he debuted the cornrows. I know we're spending a lot of time on this, uh, at the, at the rookie game in 97. And then, um, just a few weeks, about a month later, um, was when he performed the infamous crossover against Michael Jordan. But interestingly, in when you watch March that video, You'll you'll note that when he crosses up Jordan, he doesn't have cornrows. He goes back to his little mini fro. Okay. Um, so that was on uh, That's right. that was on March twelfth, nineteen ninety seven. Um, and by now, of course, everyone who would ever be listening to this podcast has probably seen this video a million times. But he, yeah, of course, very famously um, gets matched up on matched up by Jordan on a on a switch. Uh, Chicago coach Phil Jackson yells, "Michael, get up on him." When I grabbed the ball, I heard Phil Jackson yell, Michael. Iverson has Jordan. The crowd is into it. I gave him a little cross to see what he bite on it. I let him set his feet, and then I stepped it back again. Allen shakes free, gets two! Pretty much one of the top two or three iconic moments of, uh, of Iverson's career. The, the rookie going up against his childhood idol, the greatest yeah, player of I all mean, time. I, you know, Rewatching this, Ben, I you know for me it was really cool to see basically the old and new world NBAs kind of dueling it out. Yeah, and what was interesting and kind of you know little like infrequently discussed. Uh, I know this is kind of a deep cut here. Is that AI actually put a pr- pretty sweet cross on Steve Kerr in that game as well. Oh. Obviously it's not as it's not as high profile. Like no one really cares that I was in like everyone remembers the, the Kerr crossover. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No one really cares about like Iverson crossing up Steve Kerr. Yeah. But it was I've interesting been looking for a poster of that, that one for years. Yeah. <laughs> rewatching that game, I was like, wow, he probably made Kerr look even sillier than Jordan. Yeah. But when it's Michael Jordan, that's the thing that people care about more. But re- rewatching the game, you know, I'm kind of reminded that there were a lot of young, um, kind of stubborn but talented players on those early Sixers squads. I mean, between Derek Coleman, Jerry Stackhouse, Clarence Weatherspoon, they had a lot of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Iverson was in that mix as well. And those teams struggled early, early in his career, but, um, it was just, I don't know, it was kind of noteworthy and, you know, it made me wonder like he and Stackhouse and Coleman and, and Weatherspoon never really were able to make it work. I mean, he was 
Iverson was still very young. Yeah, um, you know they did not they did not have uh, so much chemistry. I would say no, they didn't have a lot of success. But it's interesting to think about those guys on individual levels because certainly you know they all had good, um, you know, maybe certain people would argue slightly disappointing careers, but they all had good, very productive NBA careers. I mean, Derek Coleman and Jerry Stackhouse certainly had really nice NBA careers, but um, they never were able to make it work with with AI. Yeah, certainly not. Um, yeah, I believe he and Stackhouse especially like clashed a lot because it was, you know, when Iverson was drafted, it was sort of seen as like Stackhouse's team, and he was very much like an alpha right. dog, um, right. and really wasn't very comfortable like kind of sharing the uh, you know the the spotlight and the, well, the rain. I feel like there, you know, that that's like a a narrative and a theme that we have like became accustomed to, and and have become accustomed to throughout different generations of sports, but certainly in like the mid to late nineties, I mean, immediately I probably just cause they're peers. I think of that um, Dallas Mavericks team that you and I are o- always talking about between Jason Kidd, Jamal Mashburn and Jim Jackson. Yeah. There was that sort of like, wow, there's all this young talent, but they all wanted to be alpha dogs, yeah. you know? And like, it just like almost no never one, works. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it, it just, it's a shame that it never worked because they all had so much talent, but they all wanted to be the head dog on the team and no one was looking to take, you know, the, the, the secondary role. And, yeah. Yeah. It is weird how basketball is like unique like that, where it just doesn't really work to have, like, you just have to have like a clearly defined alpha and a clearly defined sidekick. Yeah. Like it's just like every other I mean, sport, think- like baseball or football, if you have the best players, like, at the at each position, like you're going to be better than your opponent, but basketball just sure. doesn't work like that. I mean, obviously, if it's like Shaq and Kobe, you know, it's a different situation. Yeah, it's as much a style of play thing as it is personalities. Yeah, you know, like I mean, like I, I'm sure Iverson and Stackhouse were, you know, like competing for shots on the court, but I, I imagine off the court too. Those were both two pretty big, brash personalities. Oh and yeah, it's like one of you guys is going to have to decide to be the bigger man here and just sort of like walk away (laughs) because like they are both pretty outspoken guys. And one of, you know, it's like there can, there can only be so many leaders in the locker room. There can only be so many voices in the locker room. So, um, so then, yeah. So getting back then to, uh, to Iverson's rookie year and and we're, and we're wrapping up the season here, but one more just incredible thing to, uh, to touch on, um, uh, a couple of weeks after the inf- uh, famous MJ crossover on April 7th of 97, again, the Sixers are playing Chicago and Iverson begins a record breaking streak of 40 point games. So on right. April 7th, he puts up 44 against the Bulls. Uh, the following game, two days later uh, against the Atlanta Hawks, he scores 40. Uh, two days after that, uh, at Milwaukee, he scores 44 yet again. And at this point, he has tied the record set by Wilt Chamberlain as a rookie for the most for, uh, most consecutive 40-point um, games by a rookie at three games. Um, so, obviously, yeah, anytime you're in the company of someone like Wilt Chamberlain as a rookie, that's pretty impressive. But he wants to break the record, not just tie it. So the very next night, on April 12th, um, Sixers are playing the Cleveland Cavaliers, and Iverson drops 50. Um, so, breaks the record, and then just for good measure, the next night, he continues the streak and scores 40 against the uh, Washington Wizards, or I guess maybe the Bullets at that point. Um, so, yeah, for five games in a row, uh, he scored 40 points or more. Um and um, yeah, so he was basically just completely unstoppable at six feet, 160 pounds. Um, as a rookie, he could just do pretty much whatever he wanted. Um, so he wins the Rookie of the Year award running away, beating out the likes of um, Stefan Marbury, Sharif Abdul Rahim, Antoine Walker, Kerry Kittles. Um, of course, some of the older, you know, more traditional players in the league are still, you know, not super thrilled about, uh, having him around. Charles Barkley famously called Iverson the quote playground rookie of the year. I just think is incredibly rich coming from a guy who is, um, a known and admitted degenerate gambler, um, <laughs> and <That's right. laughs> basically a, a piece of shit who, um, 
I mean, Barkley like once broke a guy's nose in a fight and um, threw another guy through a plate glass window. Uh, for anyone who's right. who's forgotten that, um, but you know, Charles Barkley trying trying to uh, maintain the the dignity and the and the respect yeah. of, of the NBA. Um, right. You know, looking down his uh, his nose at, at at Allen Iverson as a rookie. So he wraps up his rookie season, averaging twenty three point five points, seven and a half assists, four rebounds. He grabs two steals a game. Uh, he's playing. Fo- he's averaging forty minutes a night. He played um, seventy six games uh, of the eighty game season, and uh, yeah, I mean, he shoots forty one percent from the field. Just a really stellar uh, rookie campaign. Yeah, and yeah. By the way, like seven and a half assists per game is a pretty massive number f- uh, for someone who everyone claimed was just like a selfish, selfish. You know, sh- shot shucker. Um, yep, it's like really <laughs> difficult <laughs> to average seven and a half assists per game. Like I think maybe right. five point guards in the league did it last season. But yeah, um, as you were saying, the team itself does not have a lot of success. They finished the year twenty two and sixty. Um, and, um, yeah, that pretty much wraps up AI's rookie year. Rookie year. Yeah. Yeah. A couple important points about the, uh, summer of 1997 following his rookie year. Um, the first of which occurs on August 3rd, uh, Iverson and his friends are stopped by a police officer for speeding late at night and Iverson's arrested for carrying a concealed weapon. Um, which he did purchase legally in Virginia, but did not have a permit for, uh, or I guess he didn't have a, a permit to uh, to carry it uh, concealed on his person. Um, so he's arrested for concealed weapon and for possession of marijuana, um, and pleads no contest and is sentenced to community service and three years of probation. So this sort of begins a trend, well, I guess it continues a trend, but um, of, of, you know, his, uh, basically kind of like, um, perpetual just run-ins and, and trouble with, um, with the law off the court. Um, and obviously like some of this stuff is not justified and not warranted, but, um, you know, I mean, in this case he had a gun and like, you know, it was like a couple of joints like underneath the seat or something like that. And then a, uh, to me, much more interesting moment from the summer of 97 was the casting of the lead role in the Spike Lee joint, He Got Game. Um, now, I don't know if you found this in your research, but Iverson was among the players that Spike Lee That's was right. looking at um, That's right. for the role of Jesus Shuttlesworth, um, which, of course, later went to... Uh, Ray Allen. Um, but it's funny because it's unclear to me um, whether uh, Iverson was, whether he turned down the role or whether he didn't get cast because he kind of bombed the audition. Um, so there's like some conflicting accounts here. IMDb says that Spike Lee lost respect for Iverson when he turned down his invitation to star in the film He Got Game. And as a pointed move, Lee cast his former collegiate rival Ray Allen in the part. Um, that seems a little dubious to me, um, because the, uh, a different article from the Washington Post says that, um, basically Iverson showed up to the audition and was just like distracted and was like, I don't know, like kind of like checking his, I don't know if he had like a, yeah, like a cell phone at the time or whatever. It was just like, sort of like not paying attention, like didn't take it seriously at all. Um, yeah. and the, uh, Spike Lee's original choice for the role was in fact none other than Kobe Bryant. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and um, Lee apparently really wanted Bryant, but um, according to this Washington Post article, after shooting several air balls that resulted in a brutal playoff loss to the Utah Jazz in the '97 NBA playoffs, Bryant planned an extensive workout plan that would help maintain his strength throughout the duration of a longer NBA season. So it's funny to me that like Kobe basically turned down the role because he's like, I need to work harder on my game, and Iverson didn't get the role because he like probably like showed up late and like didn't really give a shit and like didn't take it seriously at all. Right, right. <laughs> so it's just like that sounds both like on brand for like both guys. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a it sort of fits into a, a, a narrative that um we'll see later um uh remains sort of consistent throughout their careers. 
Um, so um, I just thought that was interesting. So, man, so then, I can't, I can't wait to have a conversation with you about Kobe Bryant with in relationship to Alan uh, Iverson. Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna well, get well, to in a, in a couple more. Go, couple more seasons we're going to get to a very... We'll we'll go deep on that. But yeah, there's just like a whole lot to unpack with that. Yeah. Um, So yeah, let's uh, let's move along here. His second season, uh, 97-98, not really all that remarkable. Um, You know, keeps up his steady play. I feel like it's it's an extension. It's basically an extension of the rookie year and the themes of the rookie year, which is like, he's kind of this one-man band. He's a sensation. He's... He's upsetting the apple cart, you know, the the old like the old uh, fogies of the NBA are upset with like what he's (laughs) how he's destroying how he's destroying NBA culture. And Iverson is, you know, just becoming more and more like enamored with his powers. Right. And speaking of old fogies, the one very important development from the 97-98 season is that Larry Brown assumes the head coaching position of the Philadelphia 76ers, beginning a long and very uh, tortured relationship um, between between coach and star player. Um, So Philadelphia's record does improve to 31-51 in 97-98. Um, but um, but obviously yeah they're still uh, quite a ways off from um, from being a, a real contender in the in the league. Um, so then following that is the lockout, um, of course that we remember from our childhoods um, that shortened the ninety eight ninety nine season to just fifty games. Um, and so from what I read, like he basically spent that off season like kind of like focusing more on his image and his brand. Um, apparently, uh, it was during that 98 off season that he like got a lot more tattoos, um, and really started sort of like feeling out. This, his... is, during, this is during the NBA lockout. Yeah. During the lockout, um, during the 98, the summer and the fall of 98. Um, and, uh, and so then it was, yeah, so he comes back, um, the season starts in February of 99. Um, it's just a, uh, you know, a condensed 50. 50- oh, can, can I just point out one thing? Um, one thing that I did come up uh, across in my research was during, during the summer of 98, and it may have actually even been in the fall, maybe it was during the lockout, um, but Iverson made a now uh, famous appearance in Rucker Park. Um, oh yeah that was during the lockout yeah this may have been a campaign that he was doing i don't know if it was with exclusively with reebok or if it was like reebok and in conjunction with and one it was definitely an and one branded thing but um yeah i mean for those who listen to the pod who maybe don't know rucker rucker park real quick is this institution super famous uh park in new york city where kind of the best street ballers in uh in in all of New York come and play and Iverson showed up once and there is actually footage online if you google you know in or if you look in YouTube there's footage of Allen Iverson playing this game in Rucker Park he it was just legendary i mean people are there it's packed they have announcers calling the game there's trash talking Iverson breaks out his famous crossover makes um you know makes people look silly and um you know he he's just an icon you can he's a hero yeah you can game. tell from, the, from the reactions like, of the crowd like when he like touches the ball like people are just oh like, my god he's out there with like his shorts like way down past his knees you know it's yeah. like he's just like so uh, completely like feeling himself in his element yeah he's totally in his element and he's he's a hero and uh yeah it was just an iconic thing i wanted yeah to, i did uh, kind of feel like that was that was really when his his kind of image went like like supernova he, um yeah he was like really cementing who he was and and appropriately enough it was um right around that time uh it was the march 1999 issue um that had yes. the the iconic slam, slam. cover yeah um with yeah. his hair blown out into the afro with the throwback jersey and like literally like so when you think of like just the sheer number of things that iverson like made popular corn roses won throwback jerseys is another one that i feel like people kind of like forget about like throwback jerseys like weren't really a thing um until the late 90s and i think it was largely thanks to that cover that people were like oh that looks cool yeah i want to like go get me like an old like dr j you know aba jersey or i want to get like an old um you know whatever like dominic wilkins jersey like he really 
kind of made that style cool. Um, I mean, it was so it was such a famous uh, issue and cover. I don't know if you know this this iconic image that they recreated this photo shoot with Joel Embiid. Right, uh, right. I, I guess in the past year or so. With, yeah, it was uh, like the twentieth anniversary or something like that. Of yeah. The cover. Embiid wearing the same um, throwback Fila jersey, you know, that like great blue, that royal blue jersey. Yeah, the red, white, and, and blue. Ho- holding the red, white, and blue basketball. And, you know, he's got the big hair. It's kind of head tilted to the side. Um, super cool. Super yeah, cool stuff. Yeah, like one of the most like just coolest, like bad, like most badass, like, you know, NBA kind of like cultural images of all time. Um, so that was in March 99. Um and now, uh, speaking about their his play on the court, um, the Sixers actually do pretty well in this lockout shortened season. They go twenty eight and twenty two, and they actually make the playoffs um, for the first time since like ninety one, I think. Um, and as a sixth seed, they upset the number three seed Orlando Magic. Um, so this is only his third season, and he's taken his team from a twenty win team to a playoff team in three years. Um, right which is pretty crazy. And it's also the first season that Iverson leads the league in uh, points per game at uh, 26.8, and he's named the to the All-NBA first team. So third year in the league, All-NBA yep. first team, um, right. which is pretty insane. Um, uh, oh, and then <laughs> another important, very important moment, <laughs> which we're going to have to talk about for a little bit, is on March 19th of 1999... Um, so this again, this is, this is, I don't know if you know what I'm about to talk about. I know where we're going. Yeah. (laughs) But you mentioned how, you know, the, the sort of contrast of, of Iverson and Kobe. And of course, like their careers parallel each other. They were from the same, in the same draft. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, Iverson was the first pick. Kobe was the, what, like 17th pick or something like that coming out of high school. Um, coming out of, uh, lower Marion high school in the Philadelphia area. Um, so, and of course Kobe goes to the Lakers, uh, but he's sort of this, you know, he's a Philadelphia kid and, um, and Iverson, even though he's obviously not a Philadelphia native, you know, comes to Philadelphia as a sixer and kind of like takes over the city and kind of is adopted, um, and, and becomes sort of the, you know, the, the, the chosen one of the city of Philadelphia. Um, and I, and I have a feeling that Kobe, um, always sort of like, that always kind of got to him a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. But so let's talk about March 19th, 1999. The Sixers play the Lakers, and Allen Iverson scores 41 points, which inspires Kobe Bryant to um, basically lose his mind. <laughs> um, and he ends up, Kobe ends up writing an article uh, a few years later uh, which I highly encourage all of our listeners to find online and read because it is just hilarious. It's called Obsession is Natural. Um, it's from the uh, the Players' Tribune, written by Kobe Bryant on uh, uh, April 18th of 2017. Um, but I have to just quote a few passages from this article because it's just so funny and, and like nothing yeah. could like could like lay bare the the contrast between these two men and their and their styles and their approaches to the game any more clearly um so uh this is kobe bryant writing uh in the players tribune obsession is natural on november 12 1996 alan iverson dropped 35 on the on the knicks in a win at the garden on november 12 96 i played five minutes and finished with two points in a lakers win at houston when I checked into my hotel room later that night and saw the 35 on Sports Center, I lost it. I flipped the table, threw the chairs, broke the TV. I thought I had been working hard. Five minutes, two points. I needed to work harder. I did. <laughs> on March 19th, 1999, this is still Kobe writing, Iverson put 41 points and 10 assists on me in, he italicizes the word, in Philadelphia. Um, so again, you can kind of sense that like, the fact yeah, that it's, it's like personal. Co- it's, it's personal. Kobe's hometown yeah. or his or at least yeah. his high school town. He says he goes on to write, "Working harder wasn't enough. I had to study this man maniacally. 
I obsessively read every article and book I could find about AI. I obsessively watched every game he had played, going back to the IUPU All-American game. I obsessively studied his every success and his every struggle. I obsessively searched for any weakness I could find. I searched the world for musings to add to my AI muse cage. This led me to study how great white sharks hunt seals off the coast of South Africa. (laughs) The patience, the timing, the angles... On February 20th, 2000, in Philadelphia, PJ, meaning Phil Jackson, gave me the assignment of guarding AI at the start of the second half. No one knew how much this challenge meant to me. I wanted him to feel the frustration I felt. I wanted everyone who laughed at the 41 and 10 he put on me to choke on their laughter. He would publicly say that neither of us could stop the other. I refused to believe that. I score 50, you score zero. That is what I believe. When I started guarding AI, he had 16 at the half. He finished the game with 16. Revenge was sweet, but I wasn't satisfied after the win. I was annoyed that he had made me feel that way in the first place. I swore from that point on to approach every matchup as a matter of life and death. No one was going to have that kind of control over my focus ever again. I will choose who I want to target and lock in. I will choose whether or not your goals for the upcoming season compromise where I want to be in 20 years. If they don't, happy hunting to you. But if they do, I will hunt you obsessively. It's only natural. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, I mean, that gives you gives you like a little insight into the mind of Kobe Bryant. Like, obvi- like he's obviously like serial killer level like insanity you know he hunted like, great white like, sharks to figure out how to play basketball i don't i like i mean i don't know man yeah. like watch some game tape you know work out in the gym uh <laughs> do we so we know how they felt about each other as competitors yeah do we have any sort of on the record statement i have a feeling i know what it would be from ai but i wonder if there are any on the record statements from kobe about how he felt about Iverson on a personal level. Like kind of what I'm getting at is like... I know that as a player, like like, he's talking about how like as a player, he was like, there was no one that was harder to guard, harder to contain. Like he totally respects Iverson as a player. But yeah, I've never heard him talk about... I I know he like respected his talent. I I guess what I'm saying in a a very roundabout way is like what we were alluding to is like Kobe, you know, like we, we mentioned with this Spike Lee thing, like Kobe was this like obsessive worker, someone that like prided his himself on like being the hardest working, most psychotic person on the court and almost like almost embarrassingly. So like Iverson was like on the polar opposite of that spectrum where like he, you know, like he, he was just, he's just gifted like with this incredible. I I can absolutely guarantee you that while Kobe Bryant was studying great white sharks off the coast of South Africa, Alan Iverson was like drinking what? in an Applebee's like watching cartoons. Yeah, playing playing Monopoly with his friends. Like Yeah, he was like like playing Nintendo and like eating yeah. like Lucky Charms. <laughs> <laughs> like I guarantee you that like Iverson does not remember that 41 and 10 he put on Kobe. Like he wouldn't even be able to tell you like what season it was. Can you imagine Iverson's reaction like to reading that article? Like, read that? He'd be like, what the fuck? You were like, like what, a word? what'd you say about sharks? He'd be like, Dude, you, you were looking at sharks, He'd be like, man? For real, bro? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just love the uh, line. Um, I have to repeat. I just love the line. Kobe saying, I, um, I will choose whether or not your goals for the upcoming season compromise where I want to be in 20 years. What like, the fuck what? does that even mean? Like, in, like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, he, like Kobe's backstage at the Oscars. He's like, just won an Oscar, and he's like, this one's for AI. He's like, yeah, you motherfucker, you have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, he's twenty like, years later, I told you I'd get that Oscar for best short film. And like, like, first what of all, the fuck is this dude's? Like, if you what have is a twenty-year life plan at all, you're a huge fucking fool. <laughs> like, get a life, dude. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and also when he's like i will hunt you obsessively it's only natural like no it's actually not natural kobe no it's it's not that's not natural at all weirdo yeah (laughs) like like you need to see a shrink 
like you really need therapy get help like i'm wishing you nothing but the best yeah it's natural uh, maybe for a great white shark but you're not a shark you're a man you're not you're, a shark you're a human man yeah. yeah you're not a shark you don't eat people yeah 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 uh anyway so um, good please yeah forgive that indulgence but i had to <laughs> I had to talk about the time no, that the ai made kobe lose his fucking mind um the best so then moving on to the 99-2000 season, um, uh, not much to talk about here on the court. Um, the Sixers do get back to the playoffs um, as a five seed, but they, uh, oh, they actually, yeah, they, they beat the Hornets in the first round, but then they lose to Indiana for the second consecutive year in the second round. Um, so that's important to remember. Indiana is, uh, is kind of like emerging as their big playoff rival. Oh, right. Um, Iverson um, is uh, second in the league in points per game, um, third in the league in minutes per game. Uh, he also led the league in minutes per game uh, the previous season in 99. Um, and uh, he's named to the second team All-NBA in 2000. Um, and then the uh, really only other um, sort of important thing that happens... Let's see. Oh, I, yeah. Wait, there's actually there's a, there's a few things to talk about for this season. Um, ninety nine two thousand, right? What's that? Ninety nine two thousand. Yeah, this is ninety nine two thousand. Um, so this was the year of the infamous airbrushing of uh, That's right. of AI's tattoos on the cover of Hoop magazine. Hoop. So we talked about um, he was on the cover of Slam the previous season. But Hoop Magazine is different from Slam in one key respect. It is owned by the NBA. So it is a, you know, officially sanctioned NBA product. And um, right. because of that, um, you know, they want to make sure that their image is uh, nice and clean and, and uh, ready for family consumption. So on the uh, 99-2000 holiday issue of Hoop Magazine, Iverson poses <clears throat> excuse me, for the cover um and uh and the cover comes out and now correct me if you were able to find this but i can't see uh or can't find an actual image of this cover like no. anywhere on the internet um no i it, couldn't either it seems like it's been like completely like scrubbed um from history which is kind of wild to me um but um but yeah the uh uh, record shows that the yeah the NBA chose to alter the image. Um, I'll read here from uh, from an article from the time. Um, Iverson's uh, image had been altered to eliminate the diamond earrings in both ears. His necklace had been removed. His undershirt was erased. His new neck tattoo had vanished. Um, his right arm was raised so that no tattoos were visible, and his left arm was covered by white and yellow tape. Uh, according to an article in the Chicago Sometimes, um, and then um, yeah, so basically, upon hearing of this, uh, Iverson like flips out. Um, he responded, "Quote: Hey, you can't do that. That's not right. I am who I am. You can't change that. Who gives them the authority to remake me? Everybody knows who Allen Iverson is. That's wild. That's kind of crazy. This is the first I've heard of it. But I personally am offended that somebody would do something like that." They don't have the right to try to present me in another way to the public than the way I truly am without my permission. It's an act of freedom and a form of self-expression. That's why I got mine. Um, and then he later said, um, uh, I wish they wouldn't use me at all if they can't accept all of me. I have things on my body that are just tattoos to others but mean a lot to me. About my grandmother, my mother, my kids, my fiancé. These aren't just tattoos to me. So clearly um, he was pissed off and I would argue rightfully so uh it's insane that that ever happened <laughs> but that's yeah, pretty man. much like where the league was at at that time they like had this player and they just didn't really know how to handle it um and um so there was a, a response from the league um this guy brian mcintyre the league's senior vice president of sports communications called the whole whole thing a huge mistake he said that, quote, an over-exuberant person in our organization made a decision. It happened once. It won't happen again. It was an error in judgment. Our philosophy is to show people as they are. It's unfortunate, but it happened. No one needs to make any apologies for Allen Iverson. So, yeah, that sounds great, dude. But uh, bottom line is the NBA wanted to uh, to basically, like, whitewash Allen Iverson. Um, 
So there's another sort of important storyline that's emerging around this time, which is the Allen Iverson trade rumors. This is now uh, late to, uh, late in the toward the summer of 2000. Yeah, this is this is still during the 99 2000 season. So this was okay. the, um, I guess this was now like the third season that Larry Brown um, was there, and so now like it's that we're like turmoil is kind of brewing between Larry Brown and AI. Correct? Yeah, there's a lot of turmoil brewing. Um, so one of the, the Sixers, I want to point out at point, at this point, the Sixers have brought in free agent Bruce Bowen. They trade Billy Owens to the Magic. They acquire Tony Kukoc from the Chicago Bulls, and they would eventually, I think, move on from him, and they would send him over to uh, Atlanta, maybe. But um, it's kind of like a yeah, hodgepodge I think he was, roster. He might have been traded um, in the Matumbo trade, I'm pretty sure. That's um, right. Yeah, that sounds right. Just that prior to right. the 2001 playoffs. Um, but, um, but yeah, so already by now, like this is 99 and Iverson and Larry Brown's um, tortured relationship is, is really like, you know, a major uh, talking point in the media. Um, they're already like talking about like, you know, whether or not the team can really succeed with him as their star player, whether or not Brown can kind of like manage him. Um, because uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Larry Brown was like a very um, traditional kind of like, um, you know, X's and O's kind of coach. Um, you know, an older guy, a Caucasian, uh, you know, just very kind of clashing style with, with Iverson. So it was sort of a constant struggle for the two of them to, like, get on the same page and communicate properly. And um, and it's also important to note that by this point, like, Iverson is, like, has has pretty fully embraced his, you know, his superstardom and yeah. his image, and he is... Well, he led the league in scoring. He's now an all-NBA player. Yeah, he's an all-NBA he's player, like, you know, he's, perennial all-star. You know, right, right, rightfully so, but, like, he's, like, reading his own hype and believing his own hype, and, yeah. you know, like, he, you know, he's he's a big deal now. He's on top of the world and can pretty much do whatever he wants, and he does. He, um, you know, is by now, like, pretty regularly, like, going out and partying after games and you know, drinking until all hours of the night um, and, uh, you know, showing up to practice. Again, like, I don't want to be like the sports radio, like, uh, look at this. But um, the fact is that he did, um, you know, pretty like, uh, he treated practice as like, you know, this isn't that important. And he often showed up um, late. He often showed up extremely hungover, if not still drunk. Um, and the fact is that, like, because he's such a physical freak, like, he could just do that, and he could get away with it, and it was just not really... Yeah, this is the kid This is the kid in high school that would, like, show up to the SATs and get a 1600 without yeah. ever opening a book. Like, yeah. that, like that's who Allen Iverson was. Yeah. And everyone hated him because last night he was, it was at a like, party yeah, doing so all the drugs and, and drinking and partying his mind out, and then he just shows up and gets a 1600 on the SATs or whatever the highest score on the SATs is and like gets into the best college or whatever, you know, like it's not fair. It doesn't make sense. Everyone else is working their butt off. And yet this guy has carte blanche to do whatever he wants. Yeah. And he's driving his coaches crazy, but of course his coaches know that this guy is so gifted that we can't, you know, we, we have to just accept it and deal with it. Hey Ben, just a side note. I'm looking at the coaching staff for 99, 2000 in Philly. Yeah. Head coach is Larry Brown. The assistant coaches are Randy Ayers, who went on to a career as a head coach. John Calipari. Wow. At that point, I guess, yeah, he had been fired from the New Jersey Nets, right? And I think he rebounded. He spent a year or two as an assistant in Philly before going and becoming the head coach at Memphis, and then, of course, landing at the University of Kentucky. Right, uh, right. So John Calipari, Maurice Cheeks, and uh, John Kuster, who I believe had a cup of coffee as the head coach of the Detroit Pistons after um, <laughs> after Larry Brown left. I'm pretty sure after yeah. Larry Brown yeah, I'm pretty sure after Larry Brown won a championship with the Pistons, this guy, John Kuster, was on the staff. He obviously brought him over. Yeah, Larry Brown must and, have brought him. Um, yeah, I think he coached for a year as uh, for, as a head coach for the Pistons for a year. Yeah, yeah, there it is in uh, 2009. Yep. Interesting. Huh. Wow, Crazy. how about that? Yeah. And, of course, Mo, Mo Cheeks would um, later become yes. the head coach of the Sixers Inherit. briefly. That's right. 
Um, that's right. That's but we'll, right. we'll get to that. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. So Yes. Um, yeah, so the right. <clears throat> the 99-2000 season wraps up. Uh, Iverson is not traded, but he came extremely close. Um, in the uh, It was in the summer of 2000, following the season. So I forget if I, I mentioned, yeah, the Sixers did make the playoffs that season um, and get bounced by the uh, Pacers in the second round. Um, so then following the season in the summer of 2000, um, there is a mega deal, um, that comes within a hair's breadth of, uh, of, of going down, um, wherein Eddie Jones, Glenn Rice, Jerome Williams, and Dale Ellis, uh, would have been sent to Philly. Iverson and Matt Geiger would have been sent to Detroit. And then Jerry Stackhouse, Christian Leitner, and Travis Knight, uh, would go to Charlotte, and Anthony Mason, Tony Kukoc, and Todd Fuller would go to the Lakers. So we're talking about a four wow. a four team deal with like how many is that like sixteen players or something like that. Oh my god! And it was all worked out, and it was all ready to go. Iverson was gonna be on his way to the Detroit Pistons, and at the very last second, Matt Geiger decided not to waive a one point two million dollar trade kicker, uh, which was a, a clause in his contract. Um, meaning that in order for him to be traded, the Pistons would have to like pay that um, pay that money to to accept him in the trade in the trade, and the Pistons were unwilling to take uh, that uh, and 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 pay that uh, that trade kicker in Geiger's contract, and that nicks the entire deal. Um, so if it weren't for Matt Geiger uh, and one point two million dollars, uh, Iverson would have been traded to the Sixers or sorry to the Pistons um, before ever you know, making it to the finals with the Sixers. So, um, yeah, that was just like a, a, like a massive NBA, what could have happened, uh, right there. Um, so then the other important, um, event from the summer of 2000 was the, (laughs) the ill-fated and, uh, and much maligned rap single. Release. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. So oh boy. we're gonna have to talk about this for a little bit. Okay. Not okay. because I want to. Uh, I think we would all rather uh, forget this uh, this particular moment in history. But um, but it's important. It's a part of Al- Alan Iverson's life. We're here. We're talking about you know the life and times of AI, and uh, and I kind of feel like you can't really. It wouldn't be complete without at least touching on the fact that he did dabble in. Um, in the art of hip hop, and uh, in the summer of 2000, he released a debut single under the rap name Jules, with a Z. Um, mm-hmm. And here's some uh, some some fun trivia before we get into the more depressing part of the story. Uh, Alan Iverson's rap name Jules was inspired by Jules Winfield from Pulp Fiction, um, oh, wow. which is uh, which was I think among his favorite movies. Um, and as an added bit of um, kind of ironic trivia, uh, the name Jules uh, from Pulp Fiction, it's thought to be, um, which, you know, of course, uh, Quentin Tarantino, uh, you know, came up with and, and created. Uh, that character name was uh, thought to be derived from an amalgam of two sports stars, the NBA's Julius Irving, who, of course, uh, you know, was from the 76ers, and uh, Major League Baseball's Dave Winfield. Um, but it's also interesting because Julius Irving's middle name is actually Winfield. Um, so it had, something tells me that, um, you know, Julius Irving actually played a, played a small part in the creation of the character Jules Winfield in Pulp Fiction, which then inspired (laughs) Alan Iverson's rap name, Jules. So that's a very weird, like (laughs) kind of circuitous little historical, uh, path to go down but these are the things that i think about when i do research um so um having said all that yeah uh the rapper jules releases a song called 40 bars in the summer of 2000 it is pretty much garbage i have to say um i say that as a fan of hip-hop as a fan of gangster rap um you know like as a kid, I was obsessed with, um, you know, Biggie Smalls and Snoop Dogg yeah. and Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and all those guys. Um, but, yeah, I, have you ever listened to this song? I know a little bit about it. I, I have a, uh, 
a statement here from David Stern, then Commissioner David Stern, uh, for the audience. B- basically, S- David Stern got kind of in front of the uh, the release of the the album and and the song and said. Um, the lyrics that have been attributed to Alan Iverson's soon-to-be-released rap CD are coarse, offensive, and antisocial. Whatever constitutional rights of free speech an individual may have, there is no constitutional right to participate in the NBA, and I have the power to disqualify players who engage in offensive conduct, including inappropriate speech. Alan Iverson has done a disservice to himself the Philadelphia 76ers, his teammates, and perhaps all of the NBA. So um, it was, this was like a real lightning rod issue. Iverson uh, obviously met with David Stern. He met with various civil rights leaders um, around the country in uh, the fall of 2000 ahead of the release album. And he, I guess, would eventually retitle the album and issue an apology but basically the the big criticisms of of the um the album and and the the content of the album was that it was like insanely misogynistic homophobic violent and uh just there were just some really terrible lyrics yeah um i would say that in almost every case i um come down on the side um opposite of david stern but in this one particular instance, I have to say that I have to kind of side with him because, um, I mean, like, listen, this is the year 2000. This is like basically like this was the style of, of you know, a lot of mainstream hip hop at the time. Um, but the yeah, the song is basically just like filled with like, you know, gun violence and threats and blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, Iverson said like, hey, this is for real hip hop fans. Like if you don't want to listen to it, you don't have to. Um, it was just him expressing himself, which, you know, I'm all for, like he, you know, he wasn't trying to pretend to be anything he wasn't. I mean, although he kind of was because he, he comes off as like an actual like murderer and, um, and like, you know, serious, like fucking gangster. And, um, of course the most problematic line is, um, a very homophobic line where he says, um, and excuse the coarse language, but I think it's important to note that like, you know, it's like, it's not just, it's, it's more complicated than like, oh, David Stern is being racist and he doesn't want his players like, you know, like doing rap music. Um, but one of the lines in the song was quote, come to me with those faggot tendencies and you'll be sleeping where the maggots be. Um, so it's like, you know, I'm sorry. Like, I don't really care like what year it is or, you know, like what you're trying to do with your brand or your image or what you think, like, that's a good, that's a reflection of like what Iverson thought at the time because um, he decided to sing it in his you know in a song um, yeah, and I would say it's fucked up and I think that David Stern was like kind of like you know I don't know like uh, uh, I don't know exactly like if his reaction was like totally correct or or not but I think it's it was pretty reasonable at the time to be like I really like of all the, you know, of all the problems and whatever, like, image issues that Iverson may have, like, this is the one thing where I think he was, like, correct in being, like, I don't want my brand associated with this. Um, And he was right that he did have the power um, to say, like, hey, you're an an employee of mine. I'm the commissioner. Um, You know, you do work for me. You represent the company that I'm the commissioner of. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, you know, throughout the course of the podcast especially at like the top you know in the first chapter of of this series that we've been doing now we kind of like stressed that we're not really taking i don't know we're not trying to like glorify the guy or vilify the guy or anything but yeah just like tell the story of the guy in his life and like his trials and tribulations like his successes and his major missteps and like not excuse anything. And this is just one of those things where it's like, yeah, so here's the thing. Alan Iverson was also like, also did some really terrible stuff. Like he accomplished some amazing things and was obviously a cultural icon and a hero and an inspiration for a lot of people. But he also disappointed a lot of people, like a lot of fans too, you know, um, you know, they're like, you know, 
gay fans of the league, women, yeah, liberal, kids, liberal-minded people, kids. Like it just it sucks. It was it was a really this was like a really really big disappointment. Yeah, yeah, it totally was, and it sucked too because it it like just gave that much more fuel to the asshole like bloviators who you know already hated yes. him and, and didn't want to like him and wanted to find something to you know get riled up and like go on talk radio about um and he just gave them you know such a such an easy opening to be like oh look at this fucking like blah 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 like hip-hop right. thug you know trash yeah this guy is trash right and um yeah and it just it was uh yeah pretty disappointing um and I will say, like, I listened to some of the other, because he, he released a few other songs um, as part of this planned album. And he's not a bad rapper, like, technique-wise. Like, he kind of has, like, a bit of a flow, like, flow to him. So um, I kind of feel like with a couple of slight, like, different, slightly different judgments, like, he, he could have, um, you know, made a pretty successful, you know, sort of side hobby here. But, um, but yeah, so long story short, um, he meets with Stern and some civil rights leaders in October 2000. Um, ahead of the planned release of the album, initially he tries, he agrees to like change some of the lyrics, and then um, later in uh, in 2001, he just decides to scrap the album altogether. He's like, it's just too much of a headache. He's burned out on the controversy surrounding it. Um, no longer had a passion for for the music and all that. So that wraps up the summer of 2000 and gets us to the pretty momentous season of 2000 2001. My name's Chris Wendelkin. This is On The Line. You can tweet at me at onthelign underscore pod. Find me on Instagram. Send me any of your Iverson memories at onthelinepod at gmail.com. Check out previous episodes on our website, onthelinepodcast.com. Rate, review, subscribe to the show on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Enjoy the NBA games this week, and I will talk to you guys in a little bit.